You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at the Washington Post. Satellite images released yesterday show a large mass grave outside the besieged city of Mariupol that could hold as many as 200 bodies. As Ukrainian officials estimate that as many as 20,000 civilians have died there since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Karen Demergen covers the Pentagon for The Washington Post, and she, do- <laughs> she joins me now. Karen, welcome back to First Look. Good to be with you. Okay, so let's talk about uh, these mass graves. The, the satellite image that was released yesterday, how did that go over at the Pentagon and how is that going over uh, around the world writ large? I mean, look, these images of the human cost and the human toll of the, and the brutality, frankly, of this war are always a reminder of kind of what's at the bottom line and what's underpinning all of this. There is a element here, of course, we're talking about a renewed um, global standoff with Russia. We're talking about weapon systems that are being shipped out faster than ever before. We're talking about all of those details. But at the end of the day, it is really about, you know, the the, the Ukrainian casualties and the, the, the scores and scores and more of people who are dying and innocents and civilians who are dying as a result of this conflict. And that's kind of the moral center of this conflict. And so when you see these pictures come out of mass graves and you see these reports of things that many administration officials have suggested are war crimes, it kind of just focuses all of those details again on what the centerpiece of this really all is and what the stakes of it really all are. And I think the area around Mariupol, you know, it's been difficult sometimes to get images out of there and from the area around because of how surrounded it is. But that has turned into one of the bloodiest landscapes of this war as the Russians have surrounded it pushed their way into the city and got basically a, and, and a, a waiting game basically of 10 people survive long enough without aid coming, without corridors actually being established in a usable way um, until Russia retreats or is it just a question of time? And, 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 and seeing pictures of how many people have died and in how um, such ignominious conditions they've been laid to rest, I think is a reminder of just how high the cost is of everything that's happening. Right. And, you know, Russian President Vladimir Putin, um, yeah, he's claimed victory over Mariupol. But as you were just talking about, there are still people uh, still uh, there in the city, Ukrainian troops and civilians who are holding up in a steel plant. Apparently, Putin ordered his forces not to um, raid the plant, but instead of the quote here, he wants them to block the plant so that, quote, even a fly could not get through. Um, is there anything the United States or, or other pro-Ukraine countries can do to help evacuate those trapped people in Mariupol? Huh, um, well, in a word, not really. Um, because, um, first of all, the, the Ukraine has been fighting this war. In terms of who is on the ground in Ukraine, it's Ukrainians, and it's their volunteers that have come to join them. But the United States, NATO allies... They have not been willing at any stage in this conflict to send in 
their own forces and do things that would actually chip the, the balance of skills. We, they will send weapon systems. They will send, um, you know, fighter helicopters, warplanes. They, they will send all the parts to keep the Ukrainian military going, but it's still the Ukrainian military's fight. And actually, look, it's been a very, very long time in this conflict since Ukraine and the West have been able to create humanitarian corridors out of Mariupol, period. Even before you got back, get, got to this state where you've basically got one very, very tight area around in this steel plant and, and the complex that is actually um, a holdout. Uh, the corridors out of Mariupol went to Russia. You've seen interviews now with people who have come out through Russia because there was no way of going westward. Um, and so the fact that we're at this stage right now, I mean, it's a very ugly order that uh, President Putin gave to say, we're just going to basically lock them out. That That's saying we're going to starve them out. It's an admission, frankly, also, that Russia can't just go in and storm this facility. It's too complex. There are too many twists and turns. The casualty count on the Russian side, frankly, would probably be too high. And that's why you've seen Putin continuously move the goalposts, inching back. First, it was, okay, here's a deadline um, where you have to lay down your arms or we're going to come in and get you. Okay, now we're going to push back that deadline a little bit. Now this is our real deadline. Okay, that deadline passed too, and Mariupol did not, you know, capitulate and concede. And so now you've got this order. It's the third time in about a week that Putin has said something about like this is our last line, and then redrawn that line. The sad part is that if they're going to just blockade it, this steel plant to the point where nothing can get in, humans can survive so long in those conditions, and and we don't know exactly what they have there to sustain them. But it's not it's not a great sort of a situation to be in. Let's talk about those weapon systems you were mentioning before yesterday. President Biden announced another $800 million uh, package, military assistance package that includes heavy artillery, howitzers, and tactical drones. What's the military significance of those items? Uh, first of all, it um, shows that you are trying to put some heavy firepower, some some really powerful punches behind the efforts to arm the Ukrainians. We've seen this steadily increase since the beginning of the war with what systems the United States and its partners were willing to actually send to Ukraine, with how many, with, with whether they were mostly defensive. We've been sending javelins, we've been sending stingers for a while, but whether we were going to step that up by sending things that, can, that, 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 that hold a heavier punch. So the howitzers are a, a recognition of that. Also, the number is really interesting. I mean, about a week ago, we were sending 18 howitzers and the artillery rounds to go with them. Now it's 72 plus 144,000 artillery rounds. That's a big jump up. And it basically is a recognition of Ukraine is having the momentum be in its direction right now. There's a moment that they can take advantage of. They have more tanks on the ground than Russia does right now. And they need to be supplemented with 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 these munitions but and, and this artillery. But um, it's a moment where as Russia shifts its center of its fight, having retreated from the north and regrouped in the east, in the Donbass region and in the south, where we've seen the ugliness in Mariupol, um, that Ukraine could have a, a moment to push them back, slash at least hold back what is going to be a more concentrated Russian offensive from here. And to do that, they need the gunpowder, the firepower to actually do that. And so this is a recognition that um, the West is going to do increasingly more to help them fight from the ground and from the sky. And that's where those drones that have the capacities that the Pentagon was saying yesterday is very much in line with what Ukraine needs in this terrain could prove to be very pivotal. Ukraine has had good success thus far using drones against Russian machinery. And that has been an area in which I think the 
West has been behind Ukrainian efforts and fueling those with with much more of a willingness than perhaps you've seen to do some of the more complex war plan systems and, and, and other other weapon systems that have taken a bit more negotiation. You know, this is really um, um, interesting to hear you you talk about this and put those weapon systems that the president announced yesterday into the context of what we've been hearing over the last couple of weeks as Russia has shifted its, its um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Attention or <laughs> focus from the Western part of yeah. Ukraine and Kyiv to the east where experts were saying that that would be more advent, that the terrain literally would be more advantageous for the Russian offensive. But listening to you there, these weapon systems that the president announced yesterday could give balance even the playing field for, for the Ukrainians. I, I, I don't know if you have any reporting on this, but I'm just wondering about that ICBM missile test that the Russians conducted on Wednesday. Ominous or just pure theater on the, Russian, on the Russians' part, uh, on Putin's part? Any um, murmurings or rumblings out of the Pentagon over that missile test, what it means? Yeah, actually, what you heard out of the Pentagon immediately after the missile test was announced was a very calculated shrug. Um, they basically responded say, look, the Russians notified us under the conditions of the New START treaty that they were going to be conducting this test, so it was not a surprise. And also, we do not consider it to be a threat to the United States or its allies. Now, look, you, there's an element on all sides here of things being a flex when you're talking about nuclear-capable warheads and nuclear-capable warheads that are ICBM, they're able to go as far as an ICBM is. Um, and so you have to take that in consideration. I mean, I, we, Russia has been saber-rattling around this particular ICBM for a very long time. Its nickname in the West is the Satan II. It's been storied, to, it carries a number of potential warheads. It's, it's been storied to be the most destructive ICBM on the planet. This was the first test where they could actually see if everything that has been rumbling about it for several years now was actually true. The Russians are clearly cheering it as very successful and saying this will make sure that nobody, everybody thinks twice before they try to, to interfere with our affairs. And the West is just saying, okay, nice show, but that um, isn't actually going to change anything and we're not shaking in our boots here. And so it is, in, in many ways it is posturing, but also I don't think, um, it's a reminder of what is behind the curtain of this conflict in Ukraine. Um, mm -hmm. And it's a public reminder of that in, in both Russia and in the West, but it doesn't fundamentally change the stakes of what's going on in the ground in Ukraine, which is largely conventional war. There's concerns about it expanding into biological, chemical, potentially nuclear warfare, but this is a conventional, heavy, very bloody war. Um, that has not yet seen intercontinental ballistic missiles flying from Washington to Moscow and vice versa, which would be when we start talking about far more than just Ukraine and, and far, far less contained sort of global potential disaster. Oh, yeah. If that were to happen, we'd be having a completely different discussion. Current emergent. We'd probably Washington be off, off the air. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Correct. Uh, current Divergent, Washington Post, Pentagon correspondent. Thank you for coming back to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thank you so much. You too. Okay, we're going to keep the conversation going with the Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post Deputy Editorial Page Editor Ruth Marcus and Washington Post columnist Josh Rogan. Ruth, Josh, welcome to First Look. Hi. Good to be with you. Okay, um, 
I really want to talk about the tapes, the McCarthy tapes, and we will get to those. But I want to keep the conversation about Ukraine going for a little bit longer. Josh, you had an interview with the foreign minister of Moldova, which borders Ukraine. What are his concerns? Well, we tend to think of the Ukraine war as happening only in Ukraine, but actually Putin's aggression is affecting the whole region. Refugees, economic instability, uh, just mass, mass disruption in every part of life. And Moldova, a small country right next door to Ukraine, is suffering the worst of all of these things. And on top of that, they don't know if Putin uh, is going to attack them next. And uh, they're begging for immediate help, but also long-term partnership. And, you know, in a previous world where Putin's aspirations and the aspirations of Europeans to live freely were manageable without open warfare, it was understandable, if not justifiable, uh, to ignore some of these smaller countries in Eastern Europe that seem to be in Putin's sphere of influence. But uh, now that they're actually threatened by a war, uh, we have to take a different uh, approach, in my view, and we have to uh, show countries that want to be with the West and want to live in free and open societies that they have our support. We haven't done that, and that's what the Moldovan foreign minister was in town begging for. And, and in your interview with the foreign minister, and I, I read your column, but I don't recall seeing this, did he make a pitch to join NATO, or is that completely off the table? Yeah, Moldova's in a unique position. They don't want to join NATO, but they want to join the EU, and they've been trying to join the EU for all this time. And two weeks ago, the EU finally allowed them to get the questionnaire so that they could begin to apply for membership. The questionnaire. And... For them, they were like, oh, that's great, but we've been asking for that for 25 years. So they're not really on the NATO path. They're on the EU path. Uh, but wherever these countries want to plug into our system, wherever they want to uh, uh, join with us in this project of building a world that's free and democratic and based on human rights and rule of law, that's where we should meet them, in my view. And we haven't done that in Moldova, but in lots of other places as well, especially in Ukraine, by the way. And just think if we had uh, done more to welcome these countries into the of free and open societies early. We might not be in this situation, but we are where we are. So Moldova wants to join the EU, but they also want America to be there to balance out Putin's influence, to give them energy and support and, you know, and, and to support their democracy. And, uh, you know, we should do that. We should definitely do that uh, as soon as possible. Ruth, your view. Well, I think that the situation of Moldova is really illustrative of the danger and the continuing danger that Russia presents, not just to Ukraine, but to uh, more of Europe. And we've talked a lot this week about Russian retrenchment. They obviously did not, though they had success, according to President Putin. Um, I don't think that was kind of the success he had intended. So they are retrenching. They are focusing on eastern Ukraine. But at the same time that they're retrenching and focusing on eastern Ukraine, you see all of this chest thumping, the ICBM launch that you were talking about with Karun. And in addition, um, even this morning, I think there was some conversation from some of the Russian commanders about their interest in Moldova and um, going after Moldova. This is scary because we know uh, that Putin would not would prefer not to stop at Ukraine, and he needs to be stopped. And that just um, really re to me, um, Josh's column and the larger situation just reinforces the stakes here for the Western world. Josh, I'm one. I'm I'm wondering how likely is it? Do you think, given where things are with the Russia's war on Ukraine right now? that in a few weeks' time, we could be talking about Russia trying to project itself into other, into other countries, 
you interviewed the foreign minister of Moldova. My attention has been focused on the Baltic states like Estonia, who have also been warning the West that uh, about Putin's intentions. Are we going to see Putin try to push beyond uh, action in Ukraine? Uh, Militarily, not in the short term, but in every other way possible, it's already happening. And that's what people fail to really understand about the way that Russia wages war. Uh, The military aspect is just one piece of it. And of course, they've been uh, attacking European countries with disinformation and propaganda and economic coercion and energy coercion and intelligence operations and poisoning people with chemical weapons on European soil for years and years and years and years. And that is only getting worse. And Make no mistake, when uh, when Vladimir Putin uh, pushes four million refugees into Europe by attacking Ukraine, that's also an attack on Europe, and he knows that, and it's destabilizing. And if we look at France, we see the effects of that. It, it's, it undermines the Western-leaning governments because it makes them seem ineffectual. So the attacks are the attacks, and we have to think of the threat from Putin as a hybrid threat because that's how he thinks about it. Now, militarily, that w- it remains to be seen. What I think is that this war is going to go on for a very, very long time, and that's when we see the Biden administration tout $800 million of this and $800 million of that. We can say, okay, that's great. On the other hand, what's the plan for next month and next year if this war lasts that long? And 16 helicopters is good, but there's 150,000 Russian troops. So that's roughly a helicopter per 10,000 troops. It's really not a enough. And what happens when they run out of Russian bullets? They're going to need American weapons and they're going to need to train on those. And where is that going to happen? So, uh, you know, this is going to get worse before it gets better, Jonathan. And uh, it's it's it, Europe is already under attack. That's how they feel. And uh, right. and that's how we need to look at it. Actually, that's a that is an excellent point. One more question for you, Josh, and then um, Ruth, get ready because we're talking tapes. Uh, but Josh, um, the question of President Biden visiting Ukraine. I mean, President Zelensky invited him to, invited to see him in Kyiv. Um, the White House has already said that's not going to happen. But given your interview with the Moldovan foreign minister, should the president go or should he not go? Yeah, I'll tell you what I hear from Ukrainians, which is that uh, showing up matters, okay? And they have two big gripes with the Biden administration that date back uh, months. One is that they pulled the embassy and all of the U.S. officials, not just from Kiev, but from all of Ukraine, ahead of a lot of other countries. And that's one big thing. They want some U.S. diplomatic presence. It doesn't have to be the president. It could be anyone. Let's put the charged affair in Lviv or something like that, if we can do so safely. And second is that, yes, the United States looks feckless, rightly or wrongly, when Boris Johnson is walking around with no body armor, making a big show of his trip to Lviv. And uh, there'll be a parade of other world leaders as well. So, no, I don't think it's 100% necessary that Biden specifically go, but we have to make some diplomatic statement mm-hmm. that says that Kiev is not a place where Americans refuse to step foot. Ruth, okay, I, I, I need to get your view on this. And if not, President Biden should say Secretary Blinken or Secretary Austin go to Ukraine. As, as long as they can do it safely, they should go because it's important to show the U.S. presence and the U.S. resolve. All right. Last yesterday, yesterday morning, big earthquake in political Washington. New book from Alex Burns and and uh, Jonathan Martin, known as J Mart, at the New York Times, saying that House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, um, behind the scenes, was having conversations about invoking the Twenty Fifth Amendment, 
uh, and also asking Donald Trump to resign the presidency after the January 6th insurrection. Kevin McCarthy's office put out a statement saying the New York Times is, is flat out wrong, that never happened. And then last night on Rachel Maddow's show, she had J-Mart and Alex Burns on, and to quote James Comey, Lordy, there are tapes. And you could hear with your own ears, Kevin McCarthy saying exactly what was quoted in the New York Times and what Kevin McCarthy's office said was not true and did not happen. Um, Ruth, are we making too big a deal of this or is this <laughs> a really big deal? This, well, this is a really big deal on a number of different levels. Um, it's a really big deal if you're Kevin McCarthy, for one thing, and um, if your goal in life is to become the Speaker of the House, and if it looked um, for all the world to see that that was um, likely, if not certain, to happen uh, come November and uh, Republicans likely taking back the House in November. First of all, congratulations to our friends at the New York Times, not just for having a great story, but for having the lordy tapes and receipts to back it up. Uh, what is it? Where where are we now? This story reaffirms, um, this is going to be a little bit rude of me, but I'm going to say it anyway, three things that we already knew about Kevin McCarthy. Um, one is he's not that smart, okay? Number two Agreed. is he's not particularly honest, like, and that's putting it mildly. Um, and number three, he doesn't have a lot of spine. Um, so <laughs> he uh, stood up to Trump briefly in public, then he um, tucked his tail between his legs and scurried off to Mar-a-Lago uh, to make nice. Now we know what he really thinks. And so he has really exposed himself, I think, to a lot of trouble. It was not clear even before this, uh, depending on the size of the Republican majority to come, that he was gonna be able to win the speakership. This, I think, puts it in peril. He gets hit from one side and from the public and from folks like us for just being a flat out liar and proven liar. Um, and then he gets hit from the pro-Trump crowd for being inadequately craven and not supportive behind closed doors of the president. He said he was going to tell the president in the aftermath of January 6th, um, while the impeachment was pending and looming, that he needed to resign. Uh, so I think that one thing that we should be looking at today is the dog that he's the lap dog, but there's a bigger dog in Mar-a-Lago who hasn't barked yet, and that's President Trump. What is he going to say about this? Uh, about my Kevin, as he used to say. So this is just a kind of, I mean, this story is like simultaneously disgusting and delicious. I know. I mean, I can't, I can't stop um, giggling through it because I agree with you, your three assessments of, of Kevin McCarthy, especially the first one, I've always thought that for basically his entire time in Washington for reasons we don't have time for me to get into. But to your point about this, the sniping, um, Matt Gates. Congressman Gates of Florida put out a tweet this morning at 7.33 a.m. going right at Kevin McCarthy, basically saying, you should have trusted my instincts, not your own. It's a, a long tweet. Josh, I would love you know, whatever thoughts you have or insight into this, I agree with you, yeah. big story. I mean, Jonathan, I'm watching the Trump show for all these years. I'm just not sure that getting caught in a lie is grounds for disqualification for leadership part. 
position in the Republican yeah. Party, frankly, for in any party these days, you know, and there's a lot of time between now and November. And, you know, Trump likes to pretend he's the kingmaker, but he admitted what he is. He's a gambler. OK, and he wants to support the person who's likely to win. And nobody in that position is going to be able to manage all of those competing uh, interests. Well, it's an impossible position. And I my prediction is that Kevin McCarthy will sufficiently prostrate himself to get back into the good graces of President Trump, and then uh, if they take over, uh, he'll be in as good a position as any based on all of the other institutional factors to be the speaker anyway. And, you know, they get caught in a lie, and, you know, that, that really isn't as big of news for Republican leaders or any political leaders, frankly, as it used to be. You so, know, well, I think... Uh, no, go ahead, Ruth, go ahead. So, sorry, Jonathan. It's not just... Um, the, a lie alone may not be enough in Washington 2022 to topple you, a, a proven lie, incontrovertible lie. Um, but lie plus Trump disloyalty might do the trick. I think that it's really important as we kind of revel in um, McCarthy getting caught up in his own untruth, not to forget the really serious um, point underlying this. You had the Republican leader in the House and the Republican leader in the Senate understanding the clear and present danger that Donald Trump leaving office posed not just to the Republican Party, but to the nation and understanding that, you know, as uh, McConnell was reported by our friends at The New York Times to have said, um, if this isn't impeachable, nothing is. Um, I can't recall. Maybe you could remind me, Jonathan, how Senator McConnell ended up voting on that. They understood mm -hmm. that it was imperative to deal with Trump and to disable him from being able to hold future office. And then they backed down from that. They failed the country. They knew what they were doing. That's the really, as much as we want to talk about Kevin McCarthy's future, that's the big significance of this story. And you know I what, agree. Ruth, I'm glad I, I'm glad you, you brought that up because, yes, there are people who are going to spend a whole lot of time giggling and laughing about Kevin McCarthy getting caught up like this. But the real, the real issue here is they knew the danger that not only faced the party, but also faced the country. But that leads to another question that I actually was going to ask you before you brought that up, Ruth, and that is the fact that Kevin McCarthy, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, was willing to lie so easily about, to say that he didn't say what we know he said because of the tapes. John Heilman brought this up on Morning, uh, Morning Joe this morning, where he, he said, I think it was, it was John Heilman, who raised the issue, actually it's probably Sam Stein. Anyway, the issue being, if House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy can, so, can lie so easily to the press and to the American people, how can we trust him if he does indeed become the Speaker of the House? How can the American people trust him? And how can the press trust him? Anything that comes out of a Speaker McCarthy's office, that too is a danger facing the country, isn't it, Ruth? It is, but I think I have to sort of factor in, as I answer that question, the pre-existing cynicism of the American people. They really do believe, and perhaps they have very good reason, that all politicians lie all the time. In my experience, many politicians trim and shade and evade and try their best not to get caught in outright lies because of the situation that Kevin McCarthy finds himself in now. But it is a very, even in a post-truth, truthiness environment, it is very difficult for a, a party to have as its congressional leader um, an just outright flat-out liar.
Um, Josh, real fast, 10 seconds if you have any final thoughts on this Friday. Yeah, I think we're getting a preview of what a Republican-held Congress is going to look like. It's going to be a divided government, policy and political paralysis for two years in Washington. And a bunch of investigations and hearings are going to be based on whatever talking points the Trump-led Republican Party believes is true, whether that comports with the facts or not. That's going to be a crazy but also interesting uh, term to cover for us. Josh Hogan, Ruth Marcus, thank you both very much for uh, coming on First Look. Have a good weekend. You too, Jonathan. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.